We are 22 West Radio. 22 West Radio is 22 West Media dot com and 88.1 FM KKJZ AC3 Long Beach, Los Angeles. And you are now listening to Foodology Radio, a student-run radio show where you can hear the science and nutrition, receive dietary tips, have your own nutrition questions answered, and so much more. <laughs> Disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only. We are nutrition students, not medical professionals. This information should not be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Before making any substantial changes to your diet or lifestyle, please consult a physician, registered dietitian, or other medical professionals. And we're back again with another installment of Foodology Radio. But first, I am your host, Aaron Liao. And I'm Michelle. And today we're going to be talking a popular topic that a lot of people like to talk about in the nutrition major because it's a very big issue that we're currently facing right now as a nation. And that is a topic of food deserts or also um, food swamps as well. Yeah, food deserts are a huge issue, especially in low-income communities and minority communities. And that's a huge problem for nutrition majors or anyone in the food service field to tackle. Yeah, and those are the exact topics we're going to be discussing about uh, later in this episode. So I guess you can say that's a little bit of a preview of what is to come. But um, first, we got to get, of course, as usual, to the Nutrition in the News, an article that we picked that we find interesting that's relevant. Um, so today is uh, from Science Daily, and the title of it is Low-Level Alcohol Use During Pregnancy Can Impact Child Brain Development. So this article essentially discusses how... Uh, low levels of alcohol can actually still uh, negatively impact um, people with or children that are currently in pregnancy. Not in pregnancy. Maybe I should word it better. Children in pregnancy. No, I'm trying to. <laughs> they can still affect fetuses, so to say, um, in the womb. So the reason that this article is particularly interesting is just because um, there actually is, interestingly enough, uh, currently an ongoing debate on whether there actually does exist a safe level of alcohol consumption for uh, women currently in pregnancy. And so the article tries to address this, um, add some more data into the argument um, by studying kids 9 to 10 that were susceptible to pregnancy. And the population or the sample size of this uh, was about 9,700. So almost 10,000 children were studied during this study. And uh, just for information, uh, the study actually classified low alcohol consumption as um, up to two, uh, so one or two alcoholic drinks per occasion, so at a time, or a maximum of seven drinks per week, uh, which is important to dis- distinguish because sometimes um, definitions can vary a little bit, but that's the definition used in this study. Yeah, the study actually defined um, low levels of drinking as six drinks per week. Oh, so... yeah, my bad. I misread it. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's still a generous amount of drinking, but as we all know, like drinking during pregnancy probably isn't a good idea because that can lead to problems like fetal alcohol syndrome, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's what it's called, um, amongst other issues as well, right? Um, actually, interesting, the, the article actually, funny that you mentioned that, like, oh, um, it's not a good idea to drink during pregnancy, right? But the article actually mentions, at least in Australia, about half of women drink 
um, before they are aware of pregnancy. So the effects of alcohol can still have an effect on the fetus um, even before you know you're pregnant. And even on top of that, uh, for women who do know they're pregnant, uh, about a quarter, 25% of women still drink anyway, um, even when they are expecting a, a baby within the next you know, like nine months. That's really interesting. I wonder if it's just a knowledge gap or they just they just don't care. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I'm not really sure. It'd be interesting to know. Um, I would hope yeah. it's a knowledge gap because I would at least hope that they do care if they do know to stop it. Yeah, it's pretty like widespread knowledge that you're not supposed to drink yeah. during pregnancy. But yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's probably me being a little bit too generous saying, oh yeah, it's just a knowledge gap. Uh, I don't think it takes a genius to know, oh, you don't drink alcohol when you're pregnant, right? Um, so I don't know, maybe it's a lack of caring, unfortunately, but maybe I'm being a little bit too generous by saying that. So um, the majority of women living in Australia actually consume uh, within the low definition, so one or two drinks per consent or per occasion. Um, but the study goes on further to explain that this intake is actually still enough to make alterations to the baby's brain that we can see um, occur later in life. Yeah, so any level of drinking, like even in small amounts, can impact the baby, um, not just like excessive drinking. Yeah, and that was the, the debate going on right now, is uh, everyone agrees heavy drinking, probably not a good idea, uh, but r right now the uh, debate goes on low consumption, right? and. That's why I find this article interesting because it directly addresses the low consumption points. So in the study, uh, with the 10,000 or almost 10,000 children, 25% were exposed in the womb. And of this 25%, uh, those who were exposed in utero, in utero, so while they were still developing during any trimester, um, actually showed more psychological or emotional problems such as anxiety, depression, and social withdrawal. Um, so even with low alcohol consumption, you can still have uh, these symptoms appear in your child. And apparently if that wasn't uh, bad enough, uh, these children also um, exhibited behavioral issues such as uh, poor attention span and impulsiveness compared to those children who didn't have any alcohol consumption or any alcohol exposure uh, while they were still developing in the uterus. And the study also found that um, even during um, early pregnancy, low levels of alcohol consumption, which is about 16 drinks in the first six to seven weeks of pregnancy, can cause negative effects in children, even if the mother stopped drinking after that time. Which is difficult because many women are unaware that they're even pregnant during this early stage. Yeah, doesn't 16 drinks in the first six to seven weeks, I don't, I don't know, that doesn't sound like a a lot to begin with so yeah you have to go really low um, ideally none to even um, avoid the risk with this alcohol consumption um, what about you Michelle do you think that's a lot I, I'm not an alcohol drinker um, so I don't know it, ju it just depends on the person but yeah within six to seven weeks that's um yeah it's pretty early that? stages and I guess it's just important to um, like find out if you are pregnant so that you don't drink but yeah, yeah that's like two to well, that's really not that much that's like two to three drinks per week uh for the first six to seven weeks um so that's that's really really low that's kind of actually surprising to me even how low that is 
So during the first six to seven weeks of pregnancy, those who were exposed to about 36 drinks um, had a 25% increased risk for ADHD. Oh, wow. Wait, 20, 26 drinks? I think 36. 36. Yeah. Um, again, uh, that sounds like a good, a good amount to me now. Um, probably just because I just hit 36. Um, how much? What's the math on that? 12... That's about six drinks per week, right? 36 divided by six. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. So that's like the higher end of the low intake that this study considers. So um, it's interesting to see that it actually still increases ADHD intake. And again, heavy alcohol consumption in the early stages of pregnancy was associated with disobedient behavior and aggression. So for prevention, um, the safest option is just to abstain from drinking, especially if you are suspecting that you are pregnant or know that you are pregnant. Yeah, it's interesting um, that the article mentions that heavier alcohol consumption was um, at least associated with disobedient behavior and aggression. Um, interestingly enough, because I was reading through this uh, before this, and I was just thinking, isn't that every child? Like, let's be real here, isn't that every single child? But... I guess when you have a lot of alcohol consumption during pregnancy, uh, children are even more disobedient and aggressive. And yeah, Michelle, I guess the good point to take away from this article is the prevention aspect from the article is saying that the safest option is to abstain completely, like you said before, um, as shown, because even apparently even low levels of alcohol consumption uh, to the point where it's only about two to three times a week uh, still has uh, very significant effects towards your child during pregnancy. So Essentially, when you get lower to two to three, I guess you can, I guess the only way you can get lower to that is just go to zero or one. So it's, it's basically nothing in the first place anyway. Yeah, you don't want to take that risk. Yeah, I mean, it's your own child, right? So I don't want to take any risk, especially when it's uh, food that's not necessary to life, like alcohol. Um, at least during this about nine months of span, uh, while, you are, while you are still carrying your child, try to make a dedication to avoid alcohol consumption, even if it is. Uh, not sociably, um, I guess, I don't know, easy, so to say. I know a lot of people like drinking alcohol during parties. Um, so when you, are, when you are at a party um, with your family or whatever, uh, try to drink, um, and like, a water or even soda. Um, Kombucha. Over alcohol. That's a great non-alcoholic beverage. Or that too, yeah. If you have, like, the... I guess, yeah, a kombucha too, if you have, like, the $6 to spend on kombucha. Isn't kombucha pretty expensive, though? I don't know. Um, At least when I find it, that's how much you would pay for a drink. So, I mean, you could do a mocktail, anything. Just not alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you would get shamed anyways if somebody found out you were drinking alcohol and you were pregnant. I don't know about that, Michelle, because apparently, remember that? Remember how we mentioned before, 25% of women still drink even when they are expecting it and no one says anything to them? Who knows? Who knows, yeah. Yeah. That's Australia, right? Maybe here in the U.S. would be better. non-alcoholic beverages. Yeah. All right, so that was uh, Nutrition and News. Um, Hopefully you guys took away, took good something away from this article. Uh, Don't drink, right? Stay sober. That's the message of this article, essentially. So when we come back, we'll be discussing the main topic of this episode, which we mentioned before, which is food deserts. And we'll be first explaining um, exactly what are they exactly. So we'll be back from the break. This is 22 West Radio, KKJZ HD3, 
and on the internet at 22westradio.com. Warning. The content of the following material, the content of the following program is best questionable. Good morning, Long Beach State. The morning show that gets you up in the morning. It's a morning show with a different host each day that features talk and music. Guests will have something to say. Oh, we've got lots to say. It's just that Mo doesn't let us. Ow! What was that for? Because I let you say something. Now get to it. Listen to Good Morning Long Beach State. Weekdays from 9 a.m. to 10. Are you registered to vote? Voting is a civic right and it's important to know key information for your vote to be accurately casted. The voter registration deadline is October 19th, or Election Day, which is November 3rd, if you register as a conditional voter. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, Every registered voter in California will receive an absentee ballot that they can mail either on or before Election Day. Voters can alternatively return their mail-in ballot to a Dropbox location or vote in person. To find a polling location near you, visit www.sos.ca.gov forward slash elections forward slash polling dash place. Welcome back. Today's episode is all about food deserts. So what is a food desert? Yeah, so that's the first point we're going to talk about with food deserts. So um, the definition of a food desert would be defined as a geographic area where people living in that area lack access to affordable, uh, healthy options. So essentially, like, uh, there's no fresh fruits and vegetables there. There's pretty much no major grocery store in the area and they have to mostly rely on uh, non-healthy food sources of uh, calories so like either fast food or uh, just convenience food right or the deli market um, not the not the most healthiest of meals to get your food from yeah so people living in food deserts often have to drive like kind of far to go to a real grocery store and the only options are most likely convenience stores with very little like fresh produce and things like that yeah so like think of it like a a normal desert so to say so it's dry and it's barren and there's not many options for food uh, relatively few options and if you really do want anything uh, you have to get something that's unhealthy or you have to go drive really really far for like an hour or something uh, just to get your food right which is Uh, Not the best when you have to take like an hour or two hours of your week just to get food, right? Especially if you have to make uh, smaller trips around like, oh, you forgot one ingredient and you have to go drive for another two hours uh, just to get that one ingredient. Yeah, so it's very inconvenient for those living in food deserts to go and get healthy food. Yeah, and um, another uh, kind of important to characterize is also from like a food swamp. Where in the food swamps, kind of the other problem, uh, not exactly, it's just uh, the opposite where there's a lot of food options. So there's food stores everywhere. Uh, but the same issue with not that many grocery stores, not much fresh fruits and vegetables uh, to be purchased in the area still lies. Uh, just because most of the food options that are present, um, they're fast food or they're convenience food. Um, 
prepackaged food, so to say, uh, a lot more heavily processed. Um, there's a lot of them in the area. There's a lot of them, but there's not much of the healthy options to go around. Right. It's important to distinguish food deserts from food swamps. Whereas a food desert is where there's just not many options in general. A food swamp is where there are lots of options, but they're fast food places. And those fast food places outnumber the healthy options. Yeah. And um, it's also kind of worth mentioning that, or it is worth mentioning that, uh, with these food deserts and food swamps, um, they, they do, uh, unfortunately... Uh, target the demographics in the United States unequally, uh, usually affecting minorities more often. And I see some examples here, um, not too far uh, from home, if, at least if you're listening from Southern California. Um, some examples of these food swamps can be um, South Los Angeles, uh, New York City, Chicago, and really any grocery or any area where grocery stores are present. So South Los Angeles, um, I can, I can kind of get that. I've been in that area. Um, around that area a few times and I have ex- uh, noticed that hey there's not that much it's not, not, not that much here it's just really just like 7-elevens all over the place and maybe like some Burger King every once in a while it's, but it's mostly like um, food what do they call it foods food centers or something I like where the gas station's at I forgot what they're called food marts yeah it's mostly like those are really the only options for food around those areas yeah, and South Los Angeles is very close to us, so um, yeah, you don't have to go far to experience a food swamp. Yeah, and it's actually um, surprised me too, because usually when I hear like a food desert, you hear at least me personally, I would think of you know someplace far away, right? Maybe yeah, in the middle, middle of nowhere. Of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's it's actually right here, down in South Los Angeles, like maybe like a twenty-minute drive, and you'll be in that area right you don't have to go to like the middle of nowhere like i don't know like rural kentucky or whatever to find a food desert no it's right here 20 minutes away which surprised me when i was reading through this like oh i'm pretty close to one fortunately i'm not in it right um where i currently live there's there are grocery stores but for anyone who does live in south los angeles um you know that's pretty unfortunate for them um yeah so these are issues like right in our own communities not just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Aaron, do you have any personal experience with food deserts? Um, well, kind of. Uh, like I said before, not exactly where I live exactly. Um, but I have a, I mean, like maybe a couple of times. Um, I can at least remember one when I was coming back from a family trip when I, me and my family went down to Mexico. And we were traveling on the way back. And I believe we went through... New Mexico, I believe. We crossed the border um, through New Mexico. And on our way back, we had to stop at several towns at the areas. And we, I, at the time, I didn't know what a food desert was because, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't too educated on nutrition at the time. But uh, looking back at it now, I can reflect on it and thinking, hey, there really, there, I don't think there was a single grocery store in the entire town. Um, I think the only places to eat was McDonald's. And uh, a Mexican restaurant, I believe, and a, a gas station food mart. And that was like the only option to eat. And even I was at the time thinking like, man, there's not that much, there's not much to eat here. Uh, I think my family went to eat at the Mexican restaurant. And I think I, at the time, went to eat at like McDonald's, I believe. Um, that was when I was like 16, I believe. So it was quite a while ago. 
Um, that's my only personal experience with food deserts. I don't, I don't move much. Um, I usually stay here in Los Angeles for the most part, um, at least where I live. Uh, so I don't have much experience from food deserts. But how about you, Michelle? Do you have any personal experience? Like, have you traveled anywhere or been anywhere where you have noticed, hey, there's no food here? Um, I'm sure that I've traveled somewhere and, like, traveled through a food desert or where somewhere where there's not many options to eat. But um, personally, I grew up in Fresno and North Fresno to be specific. And I've always had um, been fortunate enough to have many grocery store options. And now I live in Long Beach and there's grocery stores available here. So I've never had to experience mm. that. Yeah, well, that's a good thing for that, right? Um, so actually, interestingly enough, uh, for this input, uh, we actually asked some of our research assistants if they had any input on it, and uh, one of them did reply. Um, so one of our research assistants did say personally no, um, but his mother did used to live in New York City, which, as we mentioned before, um, at least um, I'm pretty sure not all of New York City is a food desert, but I'm sure certain parts of it is, and I guess um, her his mother did live in a part where New York City was a food desert, and he tells us that her nearest grocery store was when she was living in Queens, uh, which is about an hour away, apparently, and from her. And she had to take both a subway and a bus ride uh, just to buy food. And it highly discouraged her as she worked full time. And it was so far that she was um, could, wouldn't be able to go because she had such a busy day, right? Working full time, you had to go then an hour of your week. So, yeah, that's a, quite unfortunate. And that's, that's a real life situation i guess a real life example of what living in a food desert is like um maybe some weeks you maybe don't even have the time to go buy food just because you have a, a busy schedule working full-time and you have to drive an hour or you have to take the subway and a bus for an hour just to go buy food yeah it's just a huge inconvenience and really discourages people from um, choosing healthier options yeah and i guess uh also um a good point to segue to um, what exactly causes them, right? So a big expectation of what causes them are big corporations pushing stores out. Um, apparently this open, only happens in cities, though, it's worth noting. Um, low income in communities. So if a community has low income, not much money to spend, uh, businesses will be discouraged to go in the local area uh, just because they don't view it as uh, financially worth it, so to say. And also stores, of course, um, I guess it's a no-brainer. Uh, this is exactly what a food desert is, but uh, stores being too far away, um, especially for people living in cities. Yeah, it's interesting to see how corporations will purposely target minority communities and low-income com income communities. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I don't think the corporations are like explicitly targeting them. It's just the way how... I guess the socioeconomic status um, works in this country. And really, when you get deeper into it, um, you know, it stems back also to like a little bit of a systemic racism, right, with the history of the country. Um, just how, uh, you know, the wealth is distributed in the country and how corporations try to put their stores where it's more financially worth it. So it's a whole big uh, systematic issue, um, right? But eventually we see it. Currently, in the modern day, we see it as food deserts, not many healthy food options for those, um, specifically minorities, because they're more 
uh, disproportionately affected uh, by this? Yeah, I think it's important to note uh, what you just said, how minority communities are disproportionately affected by them. Just some food for thought. Yeah, some very uh, hard to swallow uh, food for thought. So what are some of the implications of food deserts on public health? So food deserts obviously are a huge problem and they also have many implications on public health. Food deserts are one of the major factors contributing to obesity and childhood obesity in low-income areas. It's also difficult for people to locate foods that are important to them, for example, uh, food allergies, and also people with specific diets, like for us, we're vegan, and that would be really hard to um, accomplish in a food desert. Yeah, so like people who have uh, specific requirements, Uh, When they don't have any options to begin with, uh, maybe those requirements um, won't be met, right? And uh, particularly, it's dangerous for those who have food allergies, right? So if they eat anything with that, um, they could have like some health consequences um, from that food, and that'll be a whole different issue, right? Like then you have to worry about um, them having an allergic reaction. Then you gotta worry about like, oh, they have? Do they have like a hospital to go to? And if they're in a food desert, you know, maybe they won't even have a hospital or that great of a hospital to begin with. Yeah, so their options are just limited at the grocery store or the convenience store that they're shopping at. Yeah, and also, like um, again, since food deserts uh, disproportionately affect minorities, also it's worth uh, mentioning um, the specific cons or the specific implication on minorities. So the first being unable to meet uh, cultural diets due to the lack of proper ingredients. So, um, so like. Uh, minorities, um, they may only have options that uh, are traditionally like American ingredients, so to say, ingredients that Americans typically use a lot of, but they may not find certain ingredients that their culture specifically uh, use a lot more often um, than Americans, right? So like specific spices they not be able to find, and so they won't even be able to make um, their own food, right, that they're accustomed to. And they might, that this might create like feelings where uh, maybe they don't feel at home, right, because they don't or they can't make the food that they're so used to, um, just culturally speaking. It kind of forces them to use ingredients that they aren't really familiar with, which may also contribute to them like resorting to fast food options. Yeah, like that's also a possibility. Um, I get I I can insert like one own uh, personal experience with this. So like uh, again, I do come from like an Hispanic uh, household, and pretty much everything they make has like some Hispanic background to it so like my mom she always loves to make uh, like tamales right and i'm telling you right now if we are not able to find corn husk to make those tamales my family will go absolutely insane <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah like, it's important to just keep in mind um cultural and culture when it comes to this how uh, people like my family where they can't make tamales and i'll be a really big bummer if we can't make tamales with corn husk Yeah, so imagine not being able to make your favorite foods or what you're familiar with. It kind of takes away from your own culture. Yeah, and it kind of, kind of brings away the some of the fun aspects of food, right? If you can't enjoy uh, particular flavors, right? Uh, A major aspect of food is taste of it, and if you can't find the ingredients of it, well, food just got a little more boring, right? And on top of the food um, potentially being uh, more boring for these populations. Uh, they also could be extra pricey. Uh, so like 
any food or any fresh food that you can find, like at a convenience store, like the 7-Eleven bananas, right? Or at the 7-Eleven um, gallon of milk, for example. Uh, those will be very elevated when it comes to prices, right? And especially, uh, at least in this economy, um, of course, uh, minorities have usually, on, at least on average, um, lower incomes compared to those, um, or at least compared to more like white Americans, um, which kind of goes double whammy here. Like they can't enjoy their own personal favorite cultural foods, but all that too, they may not be able to afford that much food in general, just because the prices are so much higher compared to just buying at a normal grocery store. Yeah, so just think of convenience stores, which is what's available in most food deserts. Uh, any convenience store is going to have like their prices jacked up because it's a convenience store. Yeah, and has an extra weight to it when you don't have that much income, right? Compared like, like for example, like the average minority, right? Unfortunately enough. So when it, cut, when it does come to like even like the small option of somewhat healthy foods, like a 7-Eleven banana or whatever, like a 7-Eleven apple, um, that's why a lot of these... Uh, people living in food deserts often have to resort to like um, cheaper options of food, um, which is often like I don't know, like McDonald's or uh, Burger King, for example. And this has led to the observation where many of these people, many of these populations, do have higher incidence of obesity, uh, type two diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases. And when you add, add the layer of them not earning that much in the first place, and maybe them not even having that well of access to healthcare in the first place just because they may live um, somewhere rural, right? Um, although not always, right? Um, Southern California, for example, or Southern Los Angeles, for example. Um, but in those situations where they do live somewhere more rural, um, their healthcare access in the first place isn't even that great to even deal with the higher risk of diseases um, seen in these populations. Yeah, really great points, Aaron. Um, so we're going to go to commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some solutions to food deserts. Hi, I'm Esmeralda Perez, third year at California State University, Long Beach, and you're listening to Student Run 22 West Radio. Halli Hallöchen. That was a cringy way to say hello in German. You will learn more of that if you join my show So Deutsch every Thursday from 12 to 1 p.m. I'm not only playing good German music and teaching you weird German words, but I will also tell you everything I know about the country. So listen to So Deutsch on 22westmedia.com. Yo, you hearing this? Listen up. We're Jams from Japan, a show that plays songs exclusively from Japan. We showcase all kinds of songs, old, new, and every hit in between. So tune in and buckle up because you're in for a fun ride. Join us on Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on 22West Radio, 22Westmedia.com. This is 22West Radio, KKJZ HD3, and on the internet at 22Westradio.com. Want to know how to help Long Beach State by registering to vote? Help Long Beach win the Ballot Bowl, a voter registration competition between California universities in order to encourage civic engagement. Remember, October 19th is the last day to register to vote in California. However, 
you will still have the opportunity to register as a conditional voter up until November 3rd. In order for your registration to count towards the ballot bowl competition, be sure to register through ASI Lobby Corps' link posted on their website. That's https colon forward slash forward slash www.asicsulb.org forward slash gov forward slash. Go Beach! And we're back from the break. So before break, we were talking about implications on minorities of food deserts and their health. And now we're going to be talking about um, the last topic of the episode today, which is what are some solutions to this? So what can we actually do to mitigate the effects of food deserts going on to the future? So uh, the first option that we actually have is something that was done in 2010 by the Healthy Food Financing Initiative. Um, which aim to provide money for grocery stores to expand and rehabilitate their stores. And hopes of this was to increase spread of these grocery stores in the food deserts so we actually can provide um, healthy foods to these populations rather than just um, having them only have the option of uh, lower food options and unhealthy food options as we mentioned before. Another act that's trying to help the effects of food deserts is the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which multiplied funding and school meals for children. Yeah, so this is like a program that's more specifically aimed towards uh, children living in these food deserts because the children uh, back at home may not have uh, the most options to them. And maybe um, in their scenario, uh, the healthiest options that they can have or the most varied options that they can have is actually at school. Um, so in this case, it actually is important to make sure you increase funding to these schools so they actually have more access to healthier foods than they otherwise would. Right, because children are most likely getting their meals from school anyways, like two out of three of the meals of the day, breakfast and lunch. Yeah, and that's exactly why it's important to make sure to increase funding just so they have um, better access to these foods and having less reliance on the food that's in their immediate environment in the, or their immediate community. And lastly, SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which was formerly known as Food Stamps, is a federal program that helps low-income families with financial aid for food. Yeah, so for those who uh, have lower incomes and can't really afford uh, the food that they have available to them, right, which, as mentioned before, is pricier on average, um, SNAP is a good opportunity for them to apply to, so they actually have um, some food, right? Um, obviously, it doesn't, it's not the most direct way of solving it, but at least gets the financial aspect of buying healthy food a little bit more out of the way. Um, access to it may still be an issue, but SNAP is definitely a route um, that can benefit really anybody, right? Them paying for your food. Uh, it's a win-win scenario. So that makes uh, about the end of the episode today. Uh, that was mostly everything we wanted to talk about food editors, at least for the mo- moment being. Uh, so it is a little bit of a short episode, but uh, that's, I guess, how it goes sometimes. But hopefully you guys enjoyed watching, or not watching, but listening to us. But before we go, we got a recipe, and we know it's almost fall, and it's almost, guess what, Thanksgiving. And what does that mean? Pumpkin pie. So today, we have a recipe 
with a pumpkin pie recipe for you to make at home um, during Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving, if you ask me. That also is equally as valid, too. So recipe today is flour, uh, your sugar of your choice, oil, baking powder, uh, milk of your choice, applesauce, and of course, the conventional spices of pumpkin pie, including ginger, cloves, nutmeg, and cinnamon that we all know and love. And of course, pumpkin. What makes pumpkin pie without pumpkin, right? This will make your house smell super good on Thanksgiving if you want to impress everybody with making your own pumpkin pie from scratch. Yeah, so that's a good point too. I never, I came up forgetting how every time you bake something, you always have a nice aroma to it. Um, I don't bake very often, so I always forget about that aspect. But now you can smell pumpkin pie whenever you're having the meal getting ready to serve for Thanksgiving or after too. Yeah, so I hope everyone has a good Thanksgiving, and this will be our last episode um, until after Thanksgiving. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy your fall. Yeah, so thank you for, again. Thank you for listening to this episode on food deserts. Um, stay tuned till next time. Until then, see you next time.